So Philippians uh, chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in the second part of verse 18, that new paragraph uh, there. So let me read uh, this passage for us. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 26. And Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will, re- I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we uh, give you praise. We thank you for these, uh, this short verse with such a profound statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray now as we consider those words in this entire passage, as we consider your holy word, would you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear and receive it? Uh, by your spirit, give us the understanding uh, and help us to apply it to our own lives. And we pray that in all of this, you would receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you've heard the slogan, life is good. It's a common slogan. It's, a, it's an apparel brand. Uh, you can buy t-shirts with that slogan on it. It's a common saying. It's a model for many people. It's a, it's a rallying cry for optimism. But it's actually not anything new. And this was a, a slogan that uh, even in Paul's day, in the first century, uh, he would have heard other uh, Greek and Roman people saying this. They would have said the exact same thing. They would have said, life is good. In Greek, they would have said, zane, it's the Greek word for life. They would have said, zane kreistos. That's life is good. And optimism is a good thing. And there are many good things about life, but if we can be honest about this, and I think we can, sometimes life isn't good. Sometimes life's bad. Sometimes we go through all kinds of struggles and trials, and this was true in Paul's case. We've already considered that so much. And so he would have heard this motto. He would have heard them say, Zane Christos, life is good. And Paul, here, thinking about that, contemplating his life, He writes to the Philippians and he says, no, it is not Zane Christos. It's not life is good. It's Zane Christos. Life is Christ. Life isn't always good in that kind of ultimate sense that we think about, or at least the world defines it. But for the Christian, life is Christ. And that's even better. And that's the argument that Paul is making in this passage that we're considering today. And so consider with me again Paul's situation. We've talked about it before. Paul's awaiting the results of this trial 
Uh, he's in Rome. He's in prison. He's been turned over by the Jewish authorities uh, with their hope that he would be convicted and, and executed. And he's been preaching in every city throughout the empire. That resulted in him getting arrested. Been preaching in every city he's gone to that Caesar is not Lord. But there's another man. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He was crucified on a Roman cross, but he was risen again to new life on the third day. And that man, that Jesus, he's Lord. And so Paul and his missionary team, through the power of the Spirit, they they were indeed, like it was said of them in Thessalonica, they're going through each of these cities and they're turning the world upside down. And now in Roman prison, there's only two options for Paul at this point. There's either vindication and release and he'll have life, or there will be condemnation, conviction, and an execution, and a martyr's death. And he's contemplating these two potential results, these two realities. And, and he writes, which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. And so as we look at this passage together, the first thing we need to do is to consider the nature of Paul's choice. And this will help us as we go through the text. So we're going to look at this briefly together. Paul is at the mercy of the Roman authorities. So what is the exact nature of his choice? Does he actually have any say in the matter one way or the other? Is he going to enter the courtroom and is the judge going to ask him which way it should go? Would you like to be guilty or would you like to be innocent? That's not the case. That that can't be the case. He does not have authority over Caesar. He does not have authority over the situation. But what he does have is direct communication with the one who is greater than Caesar. And what he is doing here is he's letting the Philippians in into his personal and prayerful communications with the Lord of Lords. And so as Paul goes to Jesus, to his Lord daily in his prayers, we can see how he would be wrestling with these two possibilities. And he's asking the Lord and he's saying, Lord, I admit that my desire is to be with you now. I would love to be with you. But I know that you have more work for me left to do. So Paul is saying something to the effect of if it were up to me, which would I choose or which would I prefer? And, and Paul's wrestling with this, with this reality. He's contemplating his, his life. He's, he's weighing the pros and cons of his situation. And he's seeing the good in both outcomes. And it's very important for us to understand at the outset here that what Paul is, is debating is not between good and bad, but it's between good and good. Verse 21 is the hinge verse in this section. That well-known, that famous verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you see, to live is Christ, that's certainly a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But to die is, is a gain. How, how and in what way can death be gained? So we're going to consider uh, this, this question. We're going to consider these things by looking at this text in, in two halves. There's, there's uh, two halves to this section with verse 21 as, as the hinge point there in them. And so that's what we're going to consider. The first uh, few verses, 18 through 21, which is Paul's reason for rejoicing. And then we'll consider the second half, verses 22 through 26, as Paul's reason for living. 
And we can sum it up in Paul's own words. We can sum it up by saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, the reason for rejoicing is knowing that death is a gain. What can Rome do to Paul? Do they think, do they expect him to fear death? Of course not. Death would only result in the indescribable glory of finally being face to face with his beloved Savior. And so that's a reason for rejoicing. But yet there is a reason for living because living or life, we've already seen, life is Christ. And so those are the two things. Those are uh, two point sermon. And uh, those are the two things I want us to walk away with this morning. I want us to walk away from this morning with these two things. In the first place, that death is not to be feared. Because we don't need to fear death. Rather, death is a a reason for rejoicing because death is gain. And the second thing I want us to see is that the life we do live, even with all its pain, even with all its suffering, even with all the trials we go through, that is still a life worth living. And that's because life is Christ. So those are the two things. And let's look at those together. The first thing, a reason for rejoicing that death is a gain. Those uh, verses 18 through 21. So Paul, he's contemplating his life on death's row. And he emphatically uh, says that he will rejoice. He will rejoice. And he can say this because he knows that no matter the outcome, whether life or death, anywhere in between those two two extremes, he will gain. So let's look at that section more, uh, more closely here. There, there's so much to unpack that we'll, we'll go through this verse by verse and just unpack everything we see. So Paul starts off, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. You might have noticed in your Bibles that verse 18 is split into two. And last week we ended with the first half of verse 18. Today we're picking up with the second half of verse 18. And it's just an important reminder for us that these verse numbers, they're, they're not original to the text. They're not inspired. Uh, they're, uh, uh, they are uh, not uh, breathed out by God like Scripture is. But they are helpful tools uh, for us and for reference. But we're not beholden to them. And so this is the case here. The second half of verse 18, it really belongs with, with this section. Uh, not what goes before. But we do see that there's a connection here. Paul concludes the previous section by asking the rhetorical question, what then? What should I do? There's all these people that are that are preaching Jesus Christ with insincere hearts. What should I make about this situation? Paul says in everything, whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is being proclaimed, then I'm rejoicing. Present tense. I rejoice. He's rejoicing in his present situation. But then he turns the page, new paragraph, and he says emphatically, yes, and you know what? I am currently presently rejoicing and I will, future tense, keep on rejoicing no matter what happens. Because no matter what, regardless of the outcome, I know that things will work out for my salvation. That's the reason for Paul's rejoicing. And it's an astonishing attitude by Paul. Really considering the gravity of his situation. We think about that. He's, he's on death's row. 
One commentator, he says that this, this attitude by Paul, it reflects his deep and abiding belief and hope in the gospel and the God who reigns over history. See, he knows his God. He knows what his God is capable of. And he, he knows that no matter what happens, God will be honored. God will be glorified. And so it still it raises the question, how can Paul know that he will rejoice no matter the outcome? So I want to consider before we jump down to verse 21, there's so many things, so many. Uh, that's the ultimate reason we can think of that death is gain. But there's so many uh, things he says here as he builds up to that, that ultimate reality, that ultimate reason that's worth rejoicing in. And so as we go through, let's let's consider a few of these. Uh, we see first that he rejoices because he knows his Bible. And this one is it's not as apparent as the other things that we'll see, but But Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament here. And he actually quotes from the Old Testament book on suffering. He quotes from the book of Job. Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation. And it's a simple quote, but it's something that Job says. uh, He says the exact same thing in Job chapter 13. Where he says, this will be or this will turn out for my salvation. And though Job is going through all uh, this, this intense crucible, he's lost his family, he's lost his health, he's lost all of his possessions. He's sitting in sackcloth and ashes. As his friends try to comfort him and, and uh, nothing they say uh, truly gets at the heart of the matter. Uh, through all of these things, Job worships. In the midst of his suffering, he bows his head and he worships the Lord. And he knows that this will be for his salvation. And so it's no surprise that Paul would consider Job's testimony as he goes through his own suffering and his own trials. Paul knew his Bible so well. He prayed his Bible. He, he spoke his Bible. His, his language, his writing was littered with scripture. He knew it like the back of his hand. And so it makes perfect sense he would consider Job as he goes through his own present suffering. Those words brought him comfort. And so that's a question for us. Do we know our Bibles that way? The words of Scripture are so comforting. They, they give us the words to say and the words to pray. When we, when we don't know how to pray, Scripture teaches us how to pray. The Spirit himself helps us as we reach and, and search for those words. Those words bring comfort. They bring uh, They bring joy. They bring help in the midst of suffering. And it's a reminder to us to hold our Bibles so dear. That was a reason for Paul's rejoicing. But there's another reason. We see that he will rejoice because he knows that people are praying for him. Paul says that he will rejoice because this will turn out for his salvation. But he says that this will happen through your prayers. How incredible is that? There's so much that can be said about that simple truth that prayers work, that God uses and works through prayer. In a society and in a world that, that ridicules prayer, that the, the thoughts and prayers uh, gets ridiculed, it gets mocked in our society. But prayer works. And we know the feeling. We know how comforting it is to know that people are praying for you. I received a note like that yesterday. It's so meaningful. 
It's so wonderful to know that people are praying for you. And we see this, the importance of prayer all through this letter. And we know that prayer works not because, uh, it's not because the Philippians were twisting God's arm to help Paul. The, the efficacy, the power of prayer does not come from ourselves, but it comes from who God is. And it's because God has ordained, ordained prayer to be uh, his, uh, uh, his means for accomplishing his will. And that is a very comforting thought that God works through prayer. He works through our imperfect prayers because he himself is perfect. And that's also why Paul ties this so closely with another reason. He says that through your prayers in verse 19, he knows that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. See, Paul knows and he's rejoicing in the fact that Christ's own spirit is with him always. That Paul was never alone. That Christ was with him. That he was uh, with him and for him in his own spirit. We could do another whole sermon right there about union with Christ. And the fact that the spirit indwells in us. That Christ himself sent his spirit, his own spirit. To empower and to uh, dwell within his people. And to build his people up into the holy temple of God. Into the people of God. The household of God. His spirit poured out on us, indwells in us, and is our, our earnest or our down deposit, our assurance that we have life with Christ and life everlasting. And so what better comfort could Paul have other than the fact that Jesus' own spirit was with him? The helper, the Holy Spirit, always present. This was Jesus' promise to his disciples that as he would depart, he would not be away from them, that he would not be distant from that, but that he would be present with them, that he would send his spirit, his helper to them. And we see that here. The spirit lives within us and empowers us, encourages us, it sustains us through everything, and it will sustain us until we finally arrive at our eternal home. And Paul rejoices in that fact as well. Another thing he rejoices in is he knows that He knows what his own heart is. And this too is a power of the spirit working in him. Unlike those preaching from false pretenses, his desire and expectation is to make Christ known, not himself. Paul says that no matter what, Christ will be honored in my body. In verse 20. That is his eager expectation and that is his hope. Christ will not be, uh, he will not be ashamed of Christ. Christ will not be ashamed of him, but he will be honored in his body. That word honor, we can sometimes think of as a synonym for glory, uh, for glorifying. And there's certainly some overlap there. But this is not the, the usual word for glory, which is that word where we get our word doxology from. This is not what Paul says. Instead, he uses a verb that's derived from a, a, a comparative adjective. It's comparing something. And what it, what it means is that something is greater or something is larger. It's the word that we get our word mega from. And so Paul's meaning here is, is not just that he was going to honor Christ, though he certainly will. But that he is going to mega-size Christ and his name throughout the entire city and the country and the empire, that he's going to make Christ's name so much greater in comparison to any other name. That's his expectation, and that's his hope. 
And he knows that either way this trial goes, that's going to happen. I love that. If he keeps on living, if he's released from prison, well, guess what? He's not going to stop. (laughs) He's going to keep preaching. He's going to keep making Christ's name great. He's going to keep spreading the name of Christ. But if he is tried, if he is found guilty, he's not going to profane Christ's name. And everyone's going to know the reason for his death. It'll go down in the record. It'll go down in the cause of his death. Martyred for the sake of Christ. Refusing to forsake the name of Jesus, whom he proclaimed as the Lord of Lords. And Jesus' name would be made much of, even by his death. And that's why all of these things ultimately lead us to that verse, that he will, he will rejoice because he knows that even in death, he belongs to Christ. And therefore, and that's why, his death, he can count as gain. And that's why it's better to understand this as as salvation and not simply deliverance. It's not Paul's present circumstances that he has in mind ultimately, but it's it's his eternal state. He knows that his destiny is secure because of all these reasons. Death then is nothing for him to fear because he belongs to Christ. And that is the first half of this passage. That's Paul's reason for rejoicing. Paul will rejoice because he knows that through the prayers of the Philippians and through the help of Christ's own spirit, that everything will work out according to his own hope, which is that Christ would be made great either through his life or his death. And so that leads Paul to say one of those most beloved and well-known verses we've considered already, that beautiful truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so which then is preferable to Paul? Where does that leave us today? What should we make of death? What should we make of this statement? That brings us to the second half of this section. That second point of Paul's choice. Where we see Paul's reason for living. And that is that life is Christ. So look back with me. Verse Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That leads him to the second half of the passage. Verse 22, for I am, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. We've already discussed the nature of, of his choice. Paul's, he's, uh, he's contemplating his life here. He knows that even this current prison sen- sentence Uh, Even if it doesn't result in his death, he doesn't have that many more years left. He's nearing the end of his life, and and that's a sobering thought for him. And so which would be better better for Paul? Which would he rather have? He's he's hard-pressed, it says. He's he's torn between these two things. Why is that? Well, it's because death is gain. It would be far better. For him to be with Christ. That's what he says. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. He wants to depart from his present circumstances. Of course he would. Of course he does. Why would he not want to be with Christ. And to be with him face to face. And enjoy that perfect relationship with him. You see that's what awaits Christians. At their death. 
It's a helpful reminder for us that when we die, the, the souls of the believers, at their death, they're brought immediately into glory, into the glorious presence of their Lord and of their Father. That our souls will immediately be brought into him while our bodies yet remain united to Christ and resting in the grave until that resurrection, until Christ comes again. In this life, as Paul will say elsewhere, we see dimly, we see as in a mirror. But not when we pass into glory. On that day, when that happens, we'll see him face to face. And so, of course, which would be better between those two? That is how death can be a gain. The death of gain is the glory of eternal life with God. But it must be understood that this is not a gain in the sense of escape. This is not a gain in the sense of moving from something bad to something good. It is gaining, rather, it's gaining more of Christ, who is ours already. It's not from going bad to good, but going from good to good, or good to better. Life cannot be bad. It can't be, because Paul says life is Christ. We truly have Christ. And death cannot be feared, because to die is is to gain even more of Christ, who is ours already. And so because this is the case, we must not glamorize death. Death should not be feared by the Christian, but death should, not, should also not be sought out. That's certainly not what Paul is doing here in this passage. He's, he's not contemplating suicide. He's not thinking of ways to influence the trial that would lead to his death as a result. And we know this because he says that he will find fruitful labor in this life. We know this because he's already said that life is Christ, even with all the suffering and even with all the pain and affliction that would immediately go away at his death. And that is true. He is convinced that there is a reason for living because to live is Christ. That is his reason for staying and for remaining and for being with the Philippians first and foremost, because life is for Christ. The best explanation of this short uh, phrase, to live for Christ, or to live is Christ, rather. The best explanation of that is from Paul himself in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If this life is Christ, then it is a good life indeed. And notice the direction that this life for Christ, this life that is Christ, look at the way in which this life is lived, the way it's lived out. It is lived out towards others. That's where Paul finds his fulfillment. If it was just for Paul, if it was just Paul, then why go through this anymore? But if his life is for Christ and for others, then the choice really isn't up to him. And so he will remain. He says, for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what he says. That's his reason. He says that in verse 25. And that word progress or advance We've seen it show up already in verse 12 that that connects this broader section together. 
He says in verse 12 that what has happened to him has happened for the advance or the progress of the gospel. And now as he concludes this section, he says, and he knows that he will remain so that he will see them advance or progress in their faith. First, the gospel of Christ is advancing throughout the world. And second, the faith of the Philippians is advancing in them. And for all these reasons, Paul will remain. Paul will work. He will strive. He will have fruitful labor in these things. Simply put, Paul will remain because Jesus still has work for him to do. And it's a work to serve and to help others and and to bring uh, glory to Christ above all. And that's true of each of us here. Whether we, we know it or not, whether it's obvious or not to us, we all have those who depend upon us and those who need us. And Christ is calling us to, to serve them just as we are serving him. To love God with everything in us and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the life which is Christ. Life is Christ. When you give your life to Christ, that is not a guarantee that it'll be the good life, the way the world defines it. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. It's a life of cross-bearing. It's a life of suffering. In fact, the suffering is guaranteed. But it is a good life. Our passage this morning is Paul's model. He's anticipating uh, bringing us to the next section, which we'll look at next week, verses 27 through 30. We've already mentioned how that's the main, his main thesis or proposition or statement that he wants them to get across, that they are to live their lives in a worthy manner, worthy of the gospel. And I'm not going to borrow too much from next week, but glance briefly down with me at verse 29. And we'll see this here. Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And that first part sounds great. Sign me up. But the suffering is included. Yes, the suffering is included. But always remember that this life we live is life with Christ and it's life In Christ, and the life itself is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Christ has suffered once for all. He suffered the just for the unjust. And in our sufferings and in this life, his promise to us is that I have suffered for you and I am with you in your suffering. There's nothing that we go through now that can compare with what is to come. And so as we live, we live in Christ. Life is Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray the very words of Scripture that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We thank you that this life we live now is is life with you in union with you. And we pray that as we... uh, go through life and all the struggles and trials that accompany it, that we would remember that you have suffered on our behalf, that you are with us in our suffering, and that the only thing that awaits us is life everlasting with you. And so please comfort us with those words. Would you help us to comfort one another by our own prayers 
And would you comfort us with, your, with the Comforter himself, the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do that work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.